real hard. <laughs> Harvey Oswald LaFond. Today's November 23rd, 2015, the day after the anniversary of the public removal of President John F. Kennedy in Dealey Plaza. That's right. This week marks the 52nd anniversary of the assassination, and we have a very special guest calling in tonight, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Eric, what's going on? Not much, man. You know, just uh, we've got Thanksgiving coming up. Pretty excited about. Going to eat lots of food, see family. See friends who were home visiting from all over the country. That'll be nice. And then we got our high school 10-year reunion Yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. i got to get a haircut for that and trim my beard. <laughs> I'm pretty excited to harvest. I went out and bought a uh, nice brand new belt and a nice satin vest that I'm going to wear. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I want to look like a cruise line waiter, you know? Have like a... Um, Hidden Hills? Is it at yeah. Hidden Hills? Yeah, we're having, we're having it at Hidden Hills. And uh, <clears throat> my friend Megan and I, classmates... We, uh, we planned it and uh, did the math on everything. It's going to be $25 a person and 50 for a couple. But, nice, you know, nice. You hear about these people that have high school reunions and they suck. Yeah, they have it at like a local bar or like a local Walmart. And, um, you know, it's just... Yeah, there's no planning. Yeah, it's just, they got like hot dogs and burgers. Yeah. We're going to have catered food, I understand. Yeah, we're going to have food there. Appetizers, cash, cash, cash bar. bar. We're going to have music playing. Uh, it'll be great. It's going to be period appropriate yeah. from 2001 to 2005, mostly. Yeah, for the music. So what was oh, like? What oh, was yeah, big? Yeah, yeah. I'm and thinking the, and, the, and the three... dress. Everyone should come dressed as they were. And the... Yeah, with like gigapets and the uh, flip phones, yeah. and probably we're going to need some three doors down. Definitely three doors down. Probably some uh, Backstreet Boys in sync. Yeah, I think so. No, yeah. that, that was a grade school. Were they, yeah, they were school. fading by 01, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, that was. Boy, mid- they already that was... washed up. <laughs> that was more of a middle school thing. But, uh, what else was big for music from uh, that Sugar era? Ray. Oh, yeah, Sugar Ray. Sma- Lincoln Park. Yeah, Lincoln yeah, Park. Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth. That, may have, that was like grade school, dude. I well be on the sun. <laughs> We're going to have all kinds of songs from that era, which was only 10 years ago. But let's be honest, music's a lot shittier now than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. All the shit you hear on the radio now. I li- Don't I really we sound old? It was always. I really got into Coldplay and John Mayer in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's when I got into those guys big time and became half homo. American Idiot came out in 2004. Oh, yeah, Green Day was That was one of the biggest albums of that time. Yeah. Yeah, We'll have to play some American Idiot. Boulevard of Broken Dreams, we'll just play that all night (laughs) because that's always on the radio on loop. Yeah. And Thanksgiving, are you going to ingest some carbs? Uh, Paleo update. Yeah, how's that work? How's how's that going (laughs) to work? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to give an update uh, for people who care about my health, um, because I know all the listeners do. Um, I went to the doctor on Wednesday, 
and got a physical. The first physical I've gotten from a doctor since 07. Why? Not good luck. Actually, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how guys are. We don't, we don't like to go. We well, I mean, stupid. If, yeah, if you're healthy, you should be going. You don't have to go every year. Right. But, but yeah, yeah, if you were in my I case. I mean, I was going every year for a while. Yeah. And, and then the doctor's finally, finally like, you know, you don't really, you don't have to come in for like, you, 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 wait, you, you can, can wait a couple a year. of years. Yeah, you could do a year and, and I was like, oh, yeah. oh, okay, yeah. well, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, well, you, you never know, Aaron, what's going on with your health. And uh, so I just decided to go, and uh, the doctor said my blood pressure was good. It was normal, which was good. And he said my diet, uh, eating paleo and cutting out carbs and sugar and soda and beer, was, is going to add years to my life. So that was good. Awesome. So, yeah, I went and did that. But uh, as far as you know, on Thanksgiving, what am I going to eat? I'll probably eat everything except mashed potatoes, gravy, and stuffing. I am going to be having those. Why bother? Then? That's what I'm Why looking bother? for. I, know. I think I'm not going to drink on Thanksgiving because I usually drink Stella Artois. Yeah. So I th- unless someone brings like brings me, you know, some free cold Stellas, I'm not buying any. Yeah, I'm um, also on day 25 of no alcohol, so um, I feel good about that. You know, I don't want to be. I don't want to come off as preachy, but you no, know, I appreciate that. Eric hasn't been preachy because we have gone to the bar a couple times, and he gets his club soda with a little bit of cranberry juice yeah. and a lime. That's what your recovering booze bag gets. That's the so, go-to drink. I'm sitting there just pounding Elm City mm. pints, and Eric's just you know, yeah. But oh, this cool. is this is when I, I allow myself at the end of the week to have something because with this we're kind of learning. You need a cheat. You day. have to have a cheat, and you have to <laughs> allow yourself to do what you want, and then the next day you go right back on it. So I'm, I'm deciding though if there's a cheat day coming up, I want mom to make homemade baked mac. My mom makes this baked mac that is just like four cheese. She puts bacon in it and sausage. Oh, you put a pile of ketchup on it and you drink Coca Cola with it. Yeah, you're committing cabicide. All, all the bad things. Uh, you're, you're, a, you're a ketchup mac and cheese person. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really for this fucking are. weird. For, for this, I, Why, they what, should what? put you people in camps. <laughs> Why? What do you What do you do with mac and cheese? I just eat it as a grape on it. Oh, you plain Jane. Well, I mean, dude, I understand adding stuff to your mac, but ketchup, ketchup that's fucking so good. disgusting. So, oh, good, so good, man. Just a little bit. You don't need that oh, much. Just you, but we've cut ketchup out. Like tonight we had a hamburger. relish in your fucking oatmeal. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. No, that's nah, not the same nah, thing. That's, yeah, that's it's the same comparison. fucking thing. <laughs> we had baked chicky for lunch, which was phenomenal. Green well, beans and carrots. Green beans, carrots, and seltzer. Let me tell you guys, seltzer has replaced soda yeah. completely for me. And soda was really the biggest thing for me, even even more so than alcohol and breads and, and uh, carbs and other ways. Soda was what? Because I don't drink coffee, so that was like my caffeine boost. But seltzer has just become, you know, the new soda. So I'm yeah. drinking one right now, actually. Tonight's show is sponsored by Polar Seltzer Cranberry Lime. Take oh. a pull out of that. Oh, God, that's good. Give From little, Worcester, Mass. Give a little belch. Uh. Get you there. All right, so what else? Yeah, uh, you know, PC police running rampant north of the border in Canada. A yoga class has been canceled at a Canadian university over, quote-unquote, cultural issues. Student leaders at the University of Ottawa are not backing down from a decision to cancel the free weekly yoga class over concerns about cultural appropriation, a move that is at odds with the university's own views. Jen Scharf has been teaching yoga for about 60 students at the Center for Students with Disabilities since 2008. In September of this year, the student union-run center informed her that she would no longer proceed because of, quote, cultural issues. In an email to Scharf, a student leader noted that, while yoga is a really great idea, accessible and great for students, the center had heard from a couple of students and volunteers that feel uncomfortable with how we are doing yoga while we claim to be inclusive at the same time. 
The email noted that it was often sacred and spiritual practices that were taken from cultures that have, quote, experienced oppression, cultural genocide due to colonialism and Western supremacy. And we need to be mindful of this and how we express ourselves while practicing yoga. Oh, come on. Give me a fucking break. I thought dude. you were saying there was a shard. She sharded and that's why they... <laughs> like she was mid... She, she was mid doing, you know... She was in, wearing white yoga pants and she sharded. She sharded. She, she was commando too. <laughs> and she hadn't shaved. And she had eaten curry. Oh, that's vulgar. That's that's bullshit. You believe man. that? Come on. That's going on right now about yoga. And that's happening in Canada? Dude, people They're who do yoga are like the least threatening people on the planet. They often are come replete with a Prius and a uh, Dennis Kucinich sticker <laughs> yeah. on their Prius, which has now been updated to a Bernie Sanders. Sticker. Yeah, okay, yeah, for, for, yeah, that's a good one for Bernie Sanders. And um, basically, like uh, this woman said that um, it's getting to the point where these well-intentioned social justice warriors are saying things that don't even make sense anymore. They don't even know what they're saying. They just want to be outraged about anything. You know, it's ridiculous, Oswald. Mm. You know, I know you do yoga, Aaron, so you must be kind of upset about yeah, this. Yeah, you do the hot Bikram I, yoga. I admire the, the yoga people. Yeah, hey, it comes in use for other things, right? Yeah. I imagine a lot of white people in that yoga class, I would imagine. Up in Canada, yeah. yeah. I can't imagine yeah. it's a large, uh, you know, minority. <laughs> yeah, the cast from The Wire doing yoga. Man, give me that shit. I'm going to uh, do this yoga shit. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> a lot of black yoga people, except for in the commercials, you know. <sighs> hmm, interesting. Well, yeah. they're filling, yeah, the commercials are filling a black quota they have to have. Right, right. I don't know. I just thought that was uh, something just we could bitch about. I don't know. And we released this week our first televote, well, our first uh, videotaped interview for Jackman Radio with Green Party presidential candidate Dr. Jill Stein. So you guys can check that out on our YouTube page, which we just created recently. Yeah. Uh, the YouTube page is called Jackman Radio. Yeah. And uh, the link to it's on our Facebook, and it should be going up on Jill Stein's Twitter soon. So uh, we hope you guys enjoy that. That was a, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, kind I of a new that. new avenue for us to explore. Yeah, we went down to her place in Lexington, Mass, and filmed for probably an hour and a half, and cut the interview down to about fifty-two minutes. And our uh, very one of my best friends, uh, Jeff Cornell, aka Poopsie, aka Hey Poopsie, uh, who hey shoots Poopsie. weddings for a living, uh, does uh, videos of weddings, um, has his own business in Connecticut, um, shot it and brought his cousin and henchman Chris Townsend, aka South Park, and. Uh, they filmed it and had lighting, and then Jeff edited it. So, big thanks to those guys. You can check out Jeff's uh, production uh, company on Facebook at JF3 Productions. If you are getting married and would like a video of your wedding, he's your go-to guy. He does a hell of a job. Oh yeah. I mean, he makes it look like an MTV episode of like, you know, it's my birthday and I'll be an asshole if I want to, <laughs> or Bridezilla or Sixteen and Pregnant, like all mixed together. But it's good. Yeah. But it looks good. It is really good. So we're going to continue working with Jeff, and uh, we have more interviews that we're going to want to be lining up that we'll film. And you know, I think it's cool to mix the podcast medium with that. Yeah, people want to see pictures. They want to see you know footage. They want to be able to hear it. Um, as Oswald calls, theater of the mind, you know, they want to go beyond that a little bit. So that was uh, kind of a cool experiment. And I, I think as of today, it's already got like 80 views or something. And yeah, it's trending. Hopefully it'll trend upward, you know, yeah. even further. Jill's going to share it on her Facebook and on her Twitter. So it will be 150,000 people altogether will be exposed to it. That'll be good. So that's good. Yeah. You had some kind of top 10 list or something? Yeah, we figured we did We did a top 10 list a couple weeks back about foods, right? And people it, seem to enjoy that and respond foods, to that. Yeah, yeah so you um, got something else for us. This is from the magazine called Business Insider by a guy named Drake Bayer. And it says, science says people decide these 10 things within seconds of meeting you. And psychologists call this thin slicing. Hmm. 
So, can you guys think of uh, anything uh, that... Smell? Hygiene? Yeah, I think hy- hygiene would be... Hygiene? Oh, God, that person stinks. Um, attractiveness, yeah. Uh, yeah. probably. Okay. Would you want to copulate with that person? I think <laughs> right. that's a big one. But these are things that people decide about you within oh, seconds. Oh, they decide? Just by looking at you and meeting like, you like, for a few seconds. I don't know, that's kind of a vague, like, Wait, what... Wait, do, do they talk? Well, decide about your personality and about your... Um, now, do any what of these relate to are? that other person? Like, how you could benefit, like, like fucking someone? Yeah. Like, is that, is that oh, on yeah. the list? Yeah. Well, you know, we'll, all right, we'll go through the list. Let's get to the okay. short skinny here. <laughs> <laughs> Number 10. Science says people decide these 10 things about, about you within seconds of meeting you. Number 10, if you are trustworthy. Huh. People often say if <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can look someone, so. if someone looks you in the eye yeah. and holds firm and their eyes don't shift, that person is probably trustworthy. That's why so many people are still undecided on the presidential election, because they've met all the candidates, and they don't think any of them are trustworthy. They're all shifty, and I think they're into boys. (laughs) Number nine, if you are high status, people will judge you and try and sum you up by the clothing that you're wearing, or the accessories, the watch on your arm, on your wrist. Are you high status? That's why I liked Undercover Boss. You go in there with, like, paint coveralls. It's like the CEO. Oh, yeah, I remember that show. (laughs) Number eight, this goes to the one you said, Aaron. If you are straight or gay, also known right. as gaydar. Right, yeah. That's more, that's more, it's more of whether you're, you're gay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you I mean, like, oh, this person's straight. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah within, exactly. within like 10 seconds, you're going to hear me talk about wanting a big pair of boobs yeah. in my face, so you know that I'm probably straight, you know? And it's been that way since we were little. Well, as long as we can remember, really. Yeah, yeah. So. We, we got in trouble for uh, stealing our neighbor's Playboys when we were eight years old. Really? Our dad had to feign outrage in front of our mom. I mean, were you breaking into their house and no, stealing no, them? But, no, well, this is great. <laughs> Friends with this kid, and we used to go over there and hang out and play and whatever, and then I have to go to the bathroom. His dad had like a stack, like a foot, oh, yeah. a foot high That's stack how everyone got on the back of the toilet. Porno. There was rip, no internet back then. I, high, yeah, high, high this is the old days, man. Yeah. And I'd rip pages out and throw them in my pocket and be so psyched. Yeah. I, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number seven, if you are smart, yeah, you can yeah, tell. Yeah. In seconds, you can. You can. Why I always carry a book around with me. <sighs> yeah, and it has headphones. headphones yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, glasses. Yeah, part glasses. Of, he's aloof and intelligent. That's part of, that's part of his game. Like, I want to know him. Number six, if you are dominant, mm. if you are a dominant person. That's yeah. fair. If probably you have voice lot, modulation, probably has a lot to do with your posture. Yeah, your posture. Yeah. Like you can tell when, when someone's like an alpha, like top dog. Yeah. They think. Yeah, they when their shoulders are hoisted, it looks like they have a stick up their rear. <laughs> Hunchbacks are always, you know, they're always obedient. You know, they're, they're never ordering people. You are my slave. Interesting. Exactly. Interesting. Number five. If you are successful, you can tell. Yeah, that kind of goes with the status thing. Too, yeah, though. right. Is the person clean cut, right. or are they, you know, are they, are they dressed well? Yeah. Which is, you know, that's not always true, though. A lot of these are not really always true. No. Even though sometimes. Pretty good list, though. Number four, if you were adventurous. If you're into adventure. Because you have your ski tag, your ski lift thing on your fucking jacket. Maybe you're wearing leather pants. Could be that. (laughs) Yeah. It's always good to try new things. Or you're into midget porn, you know. That's very adventurous. It depends on where you're meeting someone, though, too, because all these... That comes into play. All these things like depend on where you're meeting. Well, because you wear a mask a lot of the time when you're out and about. Yeah, you're you know. guarded. You're, yeah, not you're wear a guard. mask, but you're guarded. I mean, you're not going to say certain things in front of certain people that you might say in front of others. That's true. It's just the way it is. Uh, number three, if you're aggressive. Mm. Yeah. Aggressive people usually are, talk about like sports, <laughs> football, you know, because they're aggressive. <laughs> and they're all amped up. Everything's a competition. 
Yeah. I got to make more money than you. My car's got to be faster than yours. Yeah. My crank's got to be bigger than yours. My girl's got to be hotter than yours. I don't think the three of us are like that. That's no. one thing I will say. We're not I really... No, I, no, I walk up to someone. The first time I meet someone, I spit right on their shoes. <sighs> oh, so you mark your turf? Yeah. Like La Harvest. I go up to the biggest guy in the bar and I take a sip of his drink. He lay my ass out. <laughs> he tore my ass up. <laughs> Number two, if you're religious. Really? And that's not something you can really what, tell. What, do you see it in their eyes? Well, they have that, that glossed that, over invasion the thing, of the body okay. snatchers yes, look? Yes, that's what this article said. If the person usually any of is overly things. charismatic and very zealous in their smile <laughs> and, and really excited about so their like day. like Tom Cruise? And they want to tell you about it, yeah. Dude, you know when people got that freaky Jesus gloss? We've all seen it, Aaron. Mm. You know about that freaky Jesus gloss. It's real. Or if they're bent over, you know, facing Mecca, you're like, yeah, this person's probably religious. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. those are the ones who are getting the real ID chip, okay? Yeah, look, so we're going to put them in pens. We're going to round them up. We're going to put a chip in their arm. It's going to be Yarmulke. Trump, Trump Yarmulke chip. is a dead giveaway. Yarmulke's a giveaway. Yep, that's true. Turban is a dead giveaway. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, we're, we're going to be so hard on the towel heads that this is going to make the Japanese internment camps look like Disneyland, quite frankly. You hear about that, Aaron? Yeah, his uh, latest rhetoric. Trump, Trump wants to throw all... Give the Arabs ID or Muslims ID cards in our country, even citizens. Okay. It's fucking okay. outrageous. And number one thing that science says: people decide about you within seconds of meeting you. You are extroverted. Okay, so you're you're not someone who likes to talk or. Be no, no, you are. You're an extrovert. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. introvert. In, introvert oh, right. is the okay. opposite. Sorry. So extrovert no, is okay. like you're boisterous and you're. Yeah, you're outgoing and uh, you know you, you're like me. You'll meet someone and within three seconds you have to do your Trump impression for him. Oh uh, yeah. Because I need, I need validation that it's good, you know, much right. like he needs validation, Mike. He does. Well, he's like a little baby who wants his rattler. Yeah, yeah. He's a gossip girl, too. I don't know. I thought that was a pretty cool list. Some of, it, some of it's pretty true. I mean, it's you don't really know somebody until you spend a lot of time with them, but... I mean, I know some people that wouldn't even know the meaning of the words introvert and extrovert. That's, so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, then, then they'll be... They're not deciding on that question. Then they'll be, you'll, they'll, you'll be able to answer number seven if they're smart or stupid. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Stupid, like uh, our leaders. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I guess I guess there's a lot of truth to those, because you know we meet new people all the time. Yeah. And you're like, okay, do I want to bring another new person to the fold at right. this point? Do I want to? Do I want more friends? Do I want more people knowing about my shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I do I want to share in. my shit with more people? Right. So I don't know. <clears throat> there could probably be some kind of profile about why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, you know, you know, like the way oh, they high, pro- high levels of narcissism. The way they profile McNulty in the wire. Yeah, delusions of grandeur, narcissism, <laughs> uh, an overinflated sense of self. <laughs> oh, I have a podcast. You should listen to my podcast. <laughs> I'm a Jackman. <laughs> have you heard my podcast? Yeah, Jackman Radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we do it because we love you, and we're here to entertain you, and that's why we were put on Earth. So that's why we're going to do it. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna make podcasting great again. Yeah, we are, and we are. Yeah, we have. Let's be honest, it's we are fun. making it great again. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I think we're gonna get to our interview here pretty soon. Yeah. And tonight we have author Peter Janney, and he is the author of a book that came out in 2012, entitled Mary's Mosaic: The CIA Conspiracy to Murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and Their Vision for World Peace. And I gotta say, this is a real interesting different angle on the whole Kennedy assassination because uh, Janie doesn't go so much into the minutia of the assassination itself but afterward uh, the cover-up and of course Mary Pinchot Meyer uh, who to our listeners if you're not familiar with was married to Cord Meyer who was a high-ranking infamous CIA agent for many years Um, you know kind of 
after World War II. You know, right. jo- joined the agency in the late 40s at the same time as this fellow Peter Janney, who we're talking to tonight. His father, um, Frederick Wistar Janney, joined the agency after World War II. And Janney was actually friends with Cordmeyer, and then, of course, their children were all friends. Mm-hmm. And so Peter Janney actually knew um, Mary Meyer. And, um, it, you know, so anyways, we'll get into all that and, and why and Mary, it's... And Mary Meyer was who? Mary Meyer was, of course, um, had a close extramarital relationship with John F. Kennedy for the last two years of his life and uh, visited the White House probably at least 30 times. A lot of interesting stuff on in record. This book. So, yeah, Peter really talks about a lot of crazy stuff that happened, including her untimely death. Yeah, her which murder. Will, which will be the focal point of the interview. So, don't go anywhere. We have Peter Janney coming up next on Jackman Radio. And welcome back to Jackman Radio. And I'm very excited. We've been uh, wanting to have Mr. Janney on the program for a while. Uh, please welcome Peter Janney to the program. How's it going, Peter? It's going good. Great to be with you today. Yeah, awesome to have you on here. And thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. So, as I mentioned earlier, um, Peter is the author of Mary's Mosaic The CIA Conspiracy to Murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and Their Vision for World Peace. And I guess out of the gate, Peter, I just want to ask you, you know, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with her, who was Mary Pinchot Meyer and why is her story and death significant? journalist. Her uncle 
uh, Gifford Pinchot was a two-time governor of Pennsylvania, so she had a very privileged upbringing, uh, but she did not rest on her laurels there, so to speak. She was a very inquisitive uh, woman and in, in many respects way ahead of her time in terms of wanting to look beyond the conventional. She, she went to private schools. Uh, she went to the Brearley School in New York City, then on to Vassar College, graduating in a class of 1942, just at the outbreak of World War II. And so she, as an independent woman, immediately moved back to New York and uh, became a journalist for AP, landed a job, had her own column. Uh, so already as a young adult, Right. And so maybe during college or perhaps a little after high school, I don't know exactly when, she is introduced to a young John F. Kennedy at a, at a dance at Choate. Is that accurate? That's correct. This was in the winter of 1936. She was 15 years old. Even by that time, she was just a very young, budding, beautiful woman. Uh, I mean, she was a real head turner in, in many ways. And... Uh, Jack Kennedy came back to Choate for the winter festivities weekend. He'd already graduated from Choate the year before, and he actually started uh, as a freshman at Princeton University, but he had a lot of problems with illness. He was in and out of the hospital, and during this particular weekend in February 1936, he decided that he would go back to his, his old alma mater uh, prep school, uh, which sometimes many uh, previous graduates did, and just, you know, attend the festivities. And it was there that he first laid eyes uh, on Mary Pinchot. And uh, it was not, you know, uh, an immediate uh, glance from her point of view, uh, but uh, all Jack Kennedy was smitten with her almost from the very beginning. He kept cutting in on her date. Uh, and, you know, I think he, he never actually uh, forgot uh, that moment when they first met. Right. So it's safe to say that, that President Kennedy really had a meaningful relationship with her that went back, you know, a long time, even before she met Cord Meyer, perhaps.
a couple of people in her class at, at Vassar. Uh, so socially, they never lost touch. But it really wasn't until the fall, or I would say late 1959, early 1960, when he was getting serious about running for the presidency, that she began to take an interest in him. By that time, she was divorced from Courtmire. Uh, she had lost a child, which was a very traumatic event for her. Uh, and so she was, you know, in the midst of, of building a new life for herself. Right. And, and the child that you mentioned that she lost was actually one of your childhood friends, correct? He was my best friend, actually, at the time when we were both, you know, seven, uh, seven years old. He, he was killed when we were about nine years old, um, right at Christmas time. And we went to the same school together. We were in the same class together. <laughs> Our deaths in the class were side by side. And of course, my mother and his mother had gone to college together. They were in the same uh, class at, at Vassar. And of course, our fathers both worked at the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting piece of this whole story, Peter, and I want to really let our listeners know that you actually, you know, you knew Mary Pinchot-Meyer personally, as well as her whole family. Can you kind of sketch in the background a little bit about your family's relationship with their family? Well, you know, there were a whole bunch of families in that, of that social milieu who had come to Washington. They were, you know, involved in the government. They were involved in journalism. Ben Bradley's family was one of them, Tom Winship of the Boston Globe was another, and then of course all the emerging prominent CIA honchos, you know, Richard Helms, Jim Angleton, uh, Fitzgerald, uh, I mean, they, they, were, they were all there, and we socialized together. I knew their kids, they knew me, um, you know, it was just sort of a very uh, easygoing kind of time, whereas children, you know, we were eventually labeled as CIA brats, whatever that meant. I, I'm never <laughs> really sure what that meant. But, like the CIA um, brat pack. Yeah. So the CIA at that time really had this kind of aura image of being a kind of liberal think tank. No one knew they were really up to no good. They were really involved in some very evil shenanigans in the 1950s. And of course, you know, in the 1960s. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was just sort of uh, the power dynasty of Washington. Catherine Graham and her family were, was part of it. It, it was, uh, I, I was living right in the belly of the beast. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to touch on, on, on Graham's husband, I believe it is, who had an outburst at a press event, um, which is covered in your book. But um, just going back a little bit, you know, your father, Frederick Wistar Janney, and of course, Cordmeyer, um, both World War II veterans who, you know, if I got this correctly, kind of wanted a world without war after being involved in such a horrific event. And Yes, I, I would say a number of the early CIA recruits, they were all generally well-to-do, Ivy League educated, uh, they came from, you know, quite well-to-do families, fairly wealthy, you 
know, making money was not their primary concern. And I think coming out of World War II and seeing the horror uh, of, of what had taken place, as well as the emerging phenomenon of moving into the nuclear age now, another world war was simply unthinkable because it would destroy the planet when you started playing around with atomic and hydrogen bombs. So there were a number of, you know, these young, bright men, quasi-liberal thinkers who, you know, wanted to make the world a better place, a safer place. And so why not have an agency devoted to the collection of intelligence uh, to keep, you know, the president and, you know, the major foreign powers of the West anyway, uh, on their toes with regard to what was going on in the rest of the world. I mean, that was sort of the, the, the uh, you know, guiding light principle, or so they thought. Um, little did they know, you know, they were being recruited into Alan Dulles's den of iniquity. I mean, yeah. I, I think this guy, Alan Dulles, is really one of the most, fascinating characters of the Cold War era. Uh, I can't say enough about him, particularly now, Mike, because there's this new book that has come out about Alan Dulles that tells the real truth of who he is. It's a book called The Devil's Chessboard, and it's written by David Talbot. Oh, yes. And that book, for me, has really just turned the final key in terms of understanding what the Cold War era was really all about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and moving into the late 50s and early 60s, um, when, you know, uh, when, when JFK was inaugurated, I believe uh, 1961, January of 61, um, he was kind of in, in the midst of this relationship with Mary Pinchot Meyer. Can you describe the nature of their relationship at that time and, and uh, the significance of it?
you know, a bona fide playboy, he's a philanderer, and, you know, from a psychologist's point of view, of which your listeners should know, you know, that's my profession, um, you know, this is a man who's deeply troubled in the realm of intimacy, and so when he reconnects with Mary Meyer in, in you know, early 1960, late 1959, that era, she makes it very clear to him that she's not going to allow him to get away with his usual nonsense. That, in a sense, she's calling him all the time uh, on what his deficiencies in a relationship are. And to JFK's credit, I think he was actually very relieved to be with a very beautiful, strong-willed woman who he clearly saw was not out to hurt him, but really out to help him and give him a chance to really understand what being in love and loving some someone was really all about. And that's why I continually refer to their relationship as a relationship of redemption. She's clearly the more together person in the relationship. And I think she's capable of loving him in such a way that perhaps for the very first time, he really feels nurtured uh, by a woman who he can trust, who he can respect, and uh, who really turns out to be a profound ally for him just in the two years, two and a half years uh, that they were together, which was you know, a very intense time for both of them. Right, right. Wow, that, that's that's fascinating stuff. Um, so fast forward to November the 22nd, 1963, Kennedy is killed. Um, you know, what's what's Mary's reaction? What are her first thoughts? I mean, what's what's going on in her mind at this point? Well, I think, you know, Mary uh, initially was just traumatized uh, by what had taken place. I, I think this was just hugely traumatic for her having known him in the way that she did. And I think in her case, it's even more uh, agonizing because she's aware of the nefarious nature of what the CIA is really uh, up against. Someone once asked Mary after she had met Alan Dulles, what did she think of him? And her response was, he reminds me of Machiavelli, only worse. (laughs) And so she was really coming to realize and recognize that there was a profound darkness uh, in the Central Intelligence Agency, which had, in a way, had had swallowed her husband, Cord Meyer. I mean, that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons they divorced was that Mary just couldn't put up with him anymore and what he was doing and how his life was being taken over by this agency. So I think in the final months coming into November of 1963, uh, she is aware, as is JFK himself, that the CIA is, is you know, on its own. I mean, they are conducting their own foreign policy irregardless of what the president thinks uh, he's doing or what they should do. So when this event takes 
place, uh, I think it really throws Mary into a profound quandary uh, of what took place. And so she spends the final year of her life really trying to understand what took place in Dallas and how it got created. And of course, Mary had a lot of access to very prominent people in Washington, including JFK's uh, primary advisors. So she went to Kenny O'Donnell, who was probably JFK's closest advisor, and, you know, asked to talk with him and, and, and wanted to know what really happened. And, and Kenny O'Donnell told Mary uh, the same thing, essentially, that he told uh, the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, which Tip O'Neill reveals in his book. And at a dinner, years later, Tip O'Neill is, is sitting with Kenny O'Donnell, and Kenny says, when we were in Dallas, we were driving into an ambush. The shots came from the grassy knoll. They didn't come from uh, behind JFK initially. That's where the gunfire was coming from. And of course, this is one of the main tributaries that have been the focus of the JFK research community, um, that this whole story, this whole lie around the Warren Commission about where, what shots came from where, oh no, they all came from behind, from the Texas School Book Depository, and Oswald was on the sixth floor, and he fired all three shots. It, it's just... It just isn't true. I, I mean, it's just not factually correct. And so, as a country, we have sat for the last 50 years, 52 years, uh, in terms of having to be saddled with just the immensity of mendacity. And it's only because we had a number of people, JFK researchers, who have dedicated a good part of their lives to getting at the various levels of truth that really took place in Dallas yeah. and, and after Dallas. And it's uh, it's just really interesting, Peter, that you are connected to this history in such a personal way with your family. And I, I want to, uh, for the listeners, I want you to describe um, any kind of conversations that you had with your own father about Mary's death and maybe about the Kennedy assassination, including the very uh, kind of dark conclusion that you came to that your father uh, at least knew about her murder and possibly had a hand in it? Well, that, you know, that, that is, I think, really, Mike, one of the quintessential questions here. I mean, I was really unaware of a lot of this until I finally got to college. And, you know, where I had to grow up very quickly and separate psychologically from my parents pretty quickly because the Vietnam War was going on. My father was a major architect of Vietnam War. Uh, we started to have, you know, a lot of heated arguments that really turned into quite vociferous fights. We, we got thrown out of a restaurant uh, in the fall of 1969, I mean, it was really a scene wow. uh, where people in the restaurant, a very posh restaurant <laughs> in Cambridge, Massachusetts, people in the restaurant started taking scenes because we were raising our voices and just getting outraged at what each other was saying. And, and the head waiter finally asked us to leave. Uh, but 
between my father and I just at our table. And that was just one little incident, frankly, uh, in a larger panoply of other incidents where, you know, my relationship with my father really uh, was uh, destroyed. Um, we really never spoke uh, intimately with one another uh, after I got out of college in 1970. And of course, he died very young in 1979. He wasn't even 60 years yeah. old at that point. But it really wasn't until well after 2001 where I decided, okay, I'm going to get this book done no matter what it takes. And through just ongoing research, uh, I can go into many, many details, but to just bring your readers right into the foreground immediately, uh, I woke up one morning and realized that my father was part of a conspiracy to take Mary Meyer out, that he, would, he, had a, he, he was part of the operation uh, that allowed this to take place. Right, going back to yeah. late 1964, I believe she was killed in October of 64, is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct, okay. October 12th. So less than a year after Kennedy's killed, Peter, um, uh, you want to tell our listeners what happened to Mary and what some of the circumstances are you know, behind that, that situation. <laughs> That's that's dark, man. That's really dark. Yes, it 
you know? It, it is, and, you know, the, the sad part of it is that the CIA has been involved in a lot of rubouts uh, of a lot of different people, and some we know more about than others. Um, but that's, again, another dimension that comes out in this new book by David Talbot called The Devil's Chessboard. He has just done yeoman's duty here in terms of research, and of course, he's had access to the Dulles Papers uh, at Princeton that have just had just been opened up in the last few years. So he took advantage of that. Uh, I think he had some help in terms of people doing research for him. But it's just a fabulous book. And I would say, Mike, that that book, The Devil's Chessboard, and Jim Douglas's JFK and the Unspeakable are probably two of the most important books, if not the most important books, that define and help people understand what the Cold War era was really all about. Yeah, I need to read Talbot's new book. I read his uh, last book about the Kennedys called Brothers, which I thought was very fascinating. And um, I also, of course, read JFK and the Unspeakable, which is another, uh, you mentioned, important book. Um, and I think your book's very important, too. And I, that's why we wanted to do this show, to kind of expose people to a different aspect of this case. And well, I, I think what, what sets my book apart, of course, is I was there. You know, I mean, <laughs> I grew up with a lot of these people and I have a very personal dimension in in this story vis-a-vis who Mary Meyer was and why she was an important figure uh, in American history that, that I think really needs to be honored and recognized. I mean, this is a woman who really helped a sitting president, president turned his head away from the futility of the Cold War toward world peace. And it was not only the trust in that relationship between the two, but I think there's, you know, some very clear evidence. Uh, They were smoking marijuana together, which is, you know, can enhance one's consciousness. And I think there's some pretty good evidence that they probably did a mild uh, hallucinogenic LSD or psilocybin uh, trip just a few weeks before JFK gives this historic uh, peace speech at the American University commencement on June 10th, 1963. I mean, this is the speech where JFK finally comes out and defines who he is as a president and who he is going to be. And it was just a remarkable event. Uh, Khrushchev was so pleased by this speech that he made every city in Russia replay the speech on loudspeakers so that every Russian citizen could hear it. Because he felt for the first time that finally, here was a president who was not interested in making war, but who wanted to collaborate, particularly with him, uh, on world peace initiatives. And that's what the two of them started to do. I mean, this limited nuclear arms treaty that took place, the Senate ratified it in September, but they only started working on it in June. I mean, this was unheard of 
Right. They would be able to create this kind of treaty in two, two and a half months. And of course, the reason why is because they kept the CIA and the military out, out of the negotiations. Right, kept them out of the loop on that. And that's one of the more um, kind of explosive pieces of information in your book is about the alleged drug use. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the information did come th- from Timothy Leary and a two-hour um, tape record interview that you had with him and Leo Damore talking about, um, you know, the Kennedy-Meyer relationship as well as them possibly doing LSD together at Joe Alsop's house in Georgetown in 1963. That, that's correct. Now, take our listeners to the day on the towpath that Mary was killed and the background information on that and what happened. Right. And, and 
Um, going into a little bit more on, on her death, uh, this figure emerges in Lieutenant William L. Mitchell. And, uh, you know, during the trial and the prosecution of Ray Crump, the African-American fellow you mentioned earlier, this guy's like the star witness, you know, saying that he saw a black man over her body and, and uh, or no, he didn't see that, but he observed him in the, in the vicinity afterwards. Right. He says he did. He's, now, what your listeners should know is I'm on the verge of publishing the third and final edition of Mary's Mosaic. It will contain one new chapter, and that chapter I have spent two years uh, battling the United States Army and the National Personnel Record Center in, in St. Louis to release all the military service records. Uh, of Lieutenant William L. Mitchell. And believe me, this has been a huge fight. I've had to threaten both these institutions with several different lawsuits. Uh, and they finally relented when they, you know, my attorney called them and said, okay, I just want to give you a courtesy call here. Uh, you say you can't locate this material, you don't have it. We are going to be suing you. Uh, I'm going to be filing this complaint next week. And, and you should know, if you don't know already, that I've never lost a case like this. And the last time that I sued the Army, I, I walked away with over $150,000 just in legal fees. And then, sure enough, four or five days later, we get a phone call. Oh, Mr. Bodney, we found the material that you're looking for. Da-da-da-da-da. So... That's when I finally got the Army and, and the National Personnel Records Center to start turning over these documents. And in this final chapter, I am going to take the reader on a little tour of all these different affiliations that Mitchell was involved with, uh, you, you know, where he was at this point, where he was at that point. I mean, this was a guy who I will make the case really had clear intelligence, intelligence connections, even though he was posing uh, as a second lieutenant in the United States Army, which he was technically, but undercover, he was something very different. Right, he had what you call a light bulb job at the Pentagon. That's right. Now, is William Mitchell still alive? Yes, he is. Uh, and in fact, part of why this has taken so long uh, is that I have to do this very delicately and very uh, thoroughly, and I have to be able to substantiate almost every sentence that will be in this chapter with actual documents, all of which will be posted on the, on the Mary's Mosaic website in the next few months. And, you know, I originally uh, decided that I would try and... Uh, take Mr. Mitchell to court on a wrongful death lawsuit many years later. The problem with that doing that is even though I filed a complaint in Washington, D.C. against him, is that I, could, I did not have these records, and I was definitely afraid that if I followed through on this lawsuit, uh, the case could be easily dismissed, and he would just come to court pull out a few pieces of paper that made his military record look squeaky clean, and then he could just turn around and sue me for slander. Yeah, right. um, so I decided to uh, withdraw the lawsuit if he would submit to a deposition, a formal legal deposition, because he wow. didn't want to go into court. Mind you, he 
would be risking a lot. Yeah, uh, exposure. Even in, uh, if it looked like things could go in his favor. In, in any case, we did a deposition uh, in January of 2014, and that was where I began to uncover uh, some of uh, his statements that really just turned out to be not true. And these documents that I will present in this chapter and discuss in this chapter will show why. Another uh, issue, too, after reading this book, a question I had about Mitchell, because I think his name originally came up during Leo DeMora's original research in the early 90s. He had actually talked to a fellow named Mitchell on the phone, um, but at that time was described as being in his early 70s. Yet the Mitchell that you confronted, I think, back in 2012 is now in his early 70s. Did they use that name as a cover, or what's the discrepancy on that, Peter? Well, that's a very important point, Mike, because... Uh, I actually knew Leo DeMore when, you know, he had this phone call. Uh, I didn't talk to him uh, about about it a lot, uh, but I knew that according to what Leo had told me, uh, he had talked to this guy and he was going to meet with him. And his notes that Leo's attorney took when Leo started to talk about what had happened on this telephone call, Leo's attorney saved these notes and gave them to me five or six years ago. And these notes really, uh, they, they say quite a lot of, you know, they're in the back of the book for people to look at. But it's not clear now, Mike, whether Mr. DeMore was actually talking to Mitchell or someone who was acting as an imposter. Uh, who is giving the more just enough information to make it sound enticing, but upon further scrutiny, if Mr. DeMore decided to publish that, it could turn out to be true, which would mean that the whole telephone call would be regarded as bogus. So it's, it's really an unknown at this point who Leo DeMore was talking to. According to Mitchell, he, he never he never talked to Demore. That's what he said during the, the deposition. He didn't even know who he was. But you know, you just can't believe anything. I can't believe anything that comes out of Mr. Mitchell's mouth without further research uh, and further scrutiny, because many of his exclamations and explanations during the deposition they just don't hold water. So, Peter, in your mind, 100%, this William Mitchell who you met face-to-face was on the towpath that day in 64. He says he was. But you see, that's the other new dimension here. We don't really know if he was on the towpath because there wasn't anyone else who can corroborate his presence there that day. See, this this entire story of Mitchell's could be a complete fabrication. He might have gone to the police the very next day and say, oh yeah, by the way, I was running on the towpath yesterday and I believe I ran by this woman who matches the description that that you talk about in the newspaper today. But no one saw Mitchell there. That's the problem. So we don't know whether that was just Mitchell's role. You know, in terms of being part of this operation, we want you to, your job, Lieutenant Mitchell, is to go to the police the next day. You're going to say this. This is the script that you'll use. 
and then you'll probably have to go to trial and testify, uh, you know, when the trial takes place, probably about a year later, da-da-da-da-da. What is clear, and I can say this categorically, is that I do not believe Lieutenant Mitchell was Mary Myers' assassin. He just, he doesn't fit the profile. He doesn't have that kind of training. But what he did, what I do believe, was that he was part of the operation. And his job was to frame Ray Crump. And he almost got away with it. Yeah. And uh, earlier on, Peter, you mentioned, um, you know, the children of former CIA agents and officers like yourself, um, kind of as a CIA uh, brat. Um, in your book, you mention a woman named Tony Scheiman, who uh, was just wrote some really interesting stuff about your conversations with her and about her father, um, a Joseph W. Scheiman. I just wondered if you could provide a little more background on her and him and kind of how it all ties into everything. And 
chapter towards the end of the book, which I'm sure you're aware of, you know, where I, I talk about what took place between Tony and I, and she and her account was just instrumental uh, in helping me put the pieces together uh, of how this assassination actually went down, how the CIA actually did this and got away with it. Yeah, and, and you also mentioned Joe Scheiman was very close with William Harvey. That's right. Which, as well as Jim Angleton. Jim Angleton, and, uh, yeah. And a few of the others. All these names just keep coming up, Peter. And, yeah, wasn't wasn't Angleton tapping Mary, Mary Meyer's phone? Yes, he was. I read that uh, recently. He was doing all kinds of dirty little tricks uh, while pretending to be one of her great best friends. I mean, this is... This is how nefarious people like Jim Angleton and Alan Bellis really were. I mean, these guys were just, I guess the only way to say it, they're sort of like the quintessence of evil. I, I mean, they have many, many faces that they can wear, all of which are very, very convincing. Right. And, and so um, this is, you know, really what it took to be an effective person if you were going to live in the world of intelligence. A central piece of the book is the existence of Mary's diary and even a second diary which probably contained more detailed and explosive and personal information about her relationship with President Kennedy. What are the implications of James Angleton, uh, whose wife was actually friends with Mary, at her place the day after she died looking for that very diary? Well, that, yes, and, and
Bradley contradicts his own story. Right. Because he was in the studio at the night of the murder, whereas 25 years later in his memoir, he says that, you know, he didn't go to the studio until the day after the murder. Do you think it's true Angleton eventually burned the actual diary, or do you think anyone else uh, got fresh eyes on it? Or, what, you know, well, as... Peter, um, all the work you've done in research, uh, what is what has this done um, with your relationship with your friends growing up who ran in these circles and your own family? I mean, have you had any contact with the Meyer family, and what is your relationship now like with your family after this book coming out? Two 
and they did give me a few little uh, important tidbits here and there. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I really, um, I, I think a lot of, <laughs> I think a lot of people that I grew up with in Washington kind of feel like I betrayed my class, my social class, yeah. you know, by doing this, which is fine. I, I mean, they're entitled to their opinion. Uh, and, and their own feelings about this. Um, for me, I just felt like uh, as I got into this, I had to walk through various doors of commitment where I had to confront myself. Do you really want to know the truth here or do you want to just let it go here? Do you really want to know the truth here or do you just want to let it go? And I just became increasingly more and more resolute that if it was the last damn thing I did in my life, I was going to get to the bottom of this. That's all there was to, to it. And so, uh, you know, my own mother, uh, before she died, w was very upset that I was doing this. My father was already long gone. Um, of course, I think my mother was upset because, you know, she knew that being who I am, I wasn't going to stop and that I think it frightened her that her husband, you know, might have had some role in this, so she didn't want to face that, understandably. So it was, it's been a very, uh, in certain moments, Mike, it's a, been a very lonely journey. It, it has to be uh, in, in, in doing a story like this. But I think now, you know, coming to the end of the life, you know, where there is light at the end of the tunnel, um, I am very happy about the fact uh, that this is going to get done in a way that I think uh, can't be taken to any future place. I mean, there's nothing left to do other than this final chapter and, and putting this out. And, and then the book will be as complete as a book of this nature can be. Right. What I really want to do next is see if I can't find someone courageous enough in Hollywood who wants to take this on as a film project because this is a this is a story that really in a sense changes history. I mean it rewrites history and gives the public for anyone who wants to see the opportunity to see a very deeper truth than what we've been told. Not only about Mary Meyer's death, but about the JFK assassination. Right. And of course, all the, the events subsequent to that in terms of where we are today. The foundation of all the dysfunction and all the upheaval that we are seeing today, in my opinion, took place in the Cold War and was basically uh, engendered by the Dulles brothers, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. Uh, they were really responsible, I think, for creating the kind of culture uh, of deception, of lies, of secrecy, of really creating propaganda merchants to keep us away as citizens of knowing the real truth of what has taken place in our country.
Wow, that's uh, that's that's very well said. And just one more question, going back to the the Kennedy investigation. I, I just read this today. Is it true that your father actually chaired something in the CIA called the Garrison Group Meetings, all about all about Jim Garrison's investigation? Fascinating. In, yes, it is. How, how did you How did you learn about your father chairing those meetings? Did your father know E. Howard Hunt? Did you ever meet him before he died?
I, uh, but I don't ever remember meeting Howard Hunt. And you, you don't know that your father knew him or worked with him at all? Well, I, no, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. I mean, I never knew half the stuff my father did when he was in the CIA until I started talking to this guy, Dino Brugioni. Right. And I said, I said, Dino, tell me about this, because I, I didn't know my dad was sneaking off to Iran. I didn't know, <laughs> you know, he was involved, you know, with setting up various U- U2 constellations in Europe. What were you guys doing? Yeah. And I just learned, you know, an incredible amount of uh, material uh, about what my father was actually doing. Yeah, that that's that's wild. I mean, I, my my dad's a car salesman, so it's it's hard for me to imagine having your father and and even while he's alive, living under the same roof as him, not having a clue what he really does. I mean, I, I, that's that's crazy. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking too, Peter. And we really appreciate the work that you've done in this case because it is something that hits close, you know, close to home for you. So, uh, you know, thank you for doing this invaluable research and continuing to press on. You know. I got up the next morning and I got back to work. 
Right. And, and you know, this is all heavy stuff, but it seems like you haven't lost your sense of humor. And I think that's really important in all this. And that's one of the things we try to do with the show. We try to inform people about what's going on and important events of history, uh, but also try and do it with a little bit of humor. And because and, that's really at the end of the day, you know, all you have, you know, in this world. That's exactly right. Keep your sense and, of humor. You know, so. I hope your listeners <laughs> wrap up with that peter and i want to thank you so much for joining us uh it's been a pleasure talking with you and uh very informative and uh we, we just can't thank you enough thank you for having me mike yeah uh, thanks know. for everything peter and thank you for your courage for doing this and uh i'll continue to tell people about your work and i hope sometime we could uh grab dinner and a drink together sure thing all right take care take care peter janney folks uh, quite a story. I yeah, mean, that's a you know personal angle on this whole thing that you just don't see every day. Yeah, it's it's one of the like you said, it's a, you know a, not a less heard but less known. Part yeah, of this angle whole thing. of it. It is it is really heartbreaking though, man. I mean that really that's a bummer. You yeah, know? but he he just felt like he had to say something and he couldn't couldn't live with it. And I think there's a lot of people out there, um, in whatever the circumstance where they they know something about a family member or. You know, they, they heard about, you know, I mean, it's like the West Memphis 3 case with the three kids who were wrongly imprisoned, you know, uh, who were put in jail for all these years and then ultimately exonerated because they were innocent. Um, one of the people who they think is the actual killer is, you know, a, a man named Terry Hobbs. And in the documentary West of Memphis, they talk about the Hobbs family secret where his nephew came forward and said that they know that he was responsible for the deaths of those three boys. So it's kind of in, in, in line with that. So we hope you guys found this in, uh, interesting and uh, informative. And, um, you know, we'll be back with another episode of Jackman Radio. So have a great day.
Mm-hmm.